0: Welcome to the Good Clinical Podcast, presented by ACRO. For ACRO, I'm Robert Siegel. The National Institutes of Health describes good clinical practice, or GCP, as a set of international guidelines. These guidelines help to assure the safety, integrity, and quality of clinical trials. ACRO's Good Clinical Podcast draws upon these GCP standards to present a series of conversations. Conversations about how the clinical research industry aims to make trials better for patients. These conversations with industry leaders shine a spotlight on hot topics in clinical research, from recruiting more diverse populations into trials, to using technologies that can reduce the burdens on trial participation. ACRO's GCP brings together some of the sharpest minds in clinical research to discuss how innovation can help us build better trials. Now to our host, Sophia McLeod.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Sophia McLeod. And for today's inaugural GCP episode, I'm joined by Jackie Kent and Katherine Greger. Jackie Kent was most recently EVP and Chief Customer Officer at ACRO Member Metadata Solutions, and during her time at Metadata, she served as the Chair of the ACRO Board of Directors. She's now the Vice President of Strategy and Special Projects at the Society for Clinical Research Sites and Board Member Extraordinaire for a number of organizations. Kathyan Greger is currently the Chief Clinical Trial Officer at ACRO Member Florence Healthcare. Previously, she was with Vanderbilt University Medical Center as the Director of their Cancer Center Clinical Trials Office. Jackie and Catherine join me today to discuss how they've seen the clinical trial industry evolve over the course of their careers, particularly as it relates to being a woman in a corporate setting, and how we can keep pushing forward to make the industry more inclusive for all. And with that, let's get into the episode. Jackie, Catherine, thanks so much for joining me today. I should mention this is our first ever episode of GCP, so it's a very momentous occasion. And we're very happy to have you both here to usher in this new podcast venture with all of us. We figured since you're both two very accomplished women who have had great careers in clinical research, you'd be the perfect guests for part one of our Women in Clinical Trials mini-series. Part two will be an interview with Peyton Howell and Cindy Verst, another two ACRO board members later this season. And now I'd like to start with our little icebreaker question that we have planned to ask everyone who joins me on GCP this season, and that is, What does good clinical practice mean to you? So maybe Jackie, we'll start with you first.
2: Well, I'm going to go ahead and say good clinical practice means to me inclusion in clinical trials, making clinical trials accessible to all patients.
3: And I'm going to copy Jackie and say the same thing, right? I think good clinical practice is making innovative science available to everybody who needs access to it um, and doing it in a way that is thoughtful and intentional and that, of course, means expansion.
1: Fabulous. I love that. Perfect. Well, let's get into the meat of our conversation. Um, I think I'd like to start, you know, taking a really zoomed out view. You've both had really great careers thus far, uh, and I'm hoping you could tell us in our audience a little bit about how you got started on your career path um, and where you are now. So, Catherine, let's start with you.
3: Sure. So, I got started in clinical trials, um, Nearly two decades ago, I was secretary for the dean of a medical school, working my way through graduate school in history, so completely related to what I do now. Um, and we hired a new investigator to come in and start a research program, and I was onboarding him, and I was looking to find a new job. I said, hey, have you ever thought about clinical research? And I said, no, because blood makes me squeam- squeamish. Uh, and he said, it's okay, grab this clipboard, follow me in the clinic, and I did. And um, I got to know a lot about what research entails. It's a lot more organization and structure uh, than you would think. And those are things that resonate with me. Also, I really got into the fact that we were able to provide care for patients who didn't have access to a lot of things. We worked in an underserved community. um, So really got involved with the mission of clinical trials and just kind of fell in love with it. And that's where my career started. And I've done everything in the trial since, from patient enrollment, data, regulatory, management, all the things. Jackie, what about you?
2: Well, I spent the majority of my career at Eli Lilly and Big Pharma, and I started there in the IT organization and had a, a really great time um, pursuing innovation for clinical trials. So I was actually supporting the, the medical and the clinical organization. I uh, took a, an assignment outside the US in France and then went on to the UK. But during that time, I was asked if I wanted to do one of those cross-functional developmental, can we see what you can do? And so I actually was asked to lead the medical quality organization. So GCP, back to your GCP question, Sophia, GCP auditing. And it took me to the site. It took me to manufacturers. It took me to see the entire process end to end, and I never then returned to IT. Um, Like Catherine, you find out how exciting it is to help people, to help patients. You see the struggles that innovation can bring to the sites. And I just never went back. And I spent 29 years at Lilly, retired in 2017, and then went on to metadata where I could then bring that technology I wouldn't say any up-to-date knowledge, but technology and innovation to clinical trial practices, where I spent four and a half years, and now I'm retired and independent, doing board work and other such advisory work and consulting, and continuing to help innovation with clinical trials. That's awesome, and I can
1: say I think on behalf of ACRO that we're very happy to have you on our board, Uh, and that sort of leads me into my next question. Um, We I think when I started at Acro, we had one female board member. And that was in 2017. And now in 2023, I think we're at six, which is fantastic. Uh, that's six of 13. So we're we're coming up close there to 50%. So I was just curious, you know, using that little acro example, but thinking about the industry um on a wider scale. Have you noticed throughout your careers thus far? You know, changes in terms of the representation of women in the workforce on your company level or just sort of industry-wide?
2: I'll go ahead and make an early comment. Of course, because I've been doing this for so long, there has been a lot of progress, but not enough. Right. There's progresses at levels that I still think are mid-tier level. And now as I, you know, as I'm stepping into board level and I've been at the executive level, there's still not equity at the executive and board levels. I mean, actually right now, I would have to tell you board positions, um, I'm getting approached because they have no women. The NASDAQ's not very supportive of that. States like California have made it a law that they can't do that, right? So it's actually, you know, sad to say it's a benefit for me looking for positions right now, but that executive and that board level is not in an equitable position, Um Go back to your ACRO comment, though. That was intentional, right? And I think that is one of the things that we need to be doing is more intentionality on development, education, and and opportunity for women. Because we said we were going to make that better. And the the current board and the executive group, along with the ACRO team, intentionally went out looking for companies and leaders that we wouldn't know would be an asset to our board right Catherine's a great example right we went when florence came to us we wanted Catherine because she was a very talented is a very talented person and is an asset to our board
3: yeah i was gonna say i'm glad jackie started off because i would have to start with well i got on board because jackie said i needed to be on this board but yeah, similar, right? Like um, clinical trials at the site level tends to be dominated by females. Um, a lot of us are nurses. Um, a lot of the regulatory and data staff, there's a lot of women in research. However, as you continue to go up the management structure in that space, you start to see that change a little bit. Um, there's still a lot of women in nursing roles, um, which is great. I got asked daily if I was a nurse, but I'm not. I'm, you know, I have an MBA and a business background. Um, and so my background and my peers started to become increasingly male. Um, and I think that that's just, that's what we've seen. Florence reached out to me to join their executive team. and the chief control officer there. Um, I think partially because they did not have a woman in the C team. Um, I think we're, they're pretty open about that. And then also being representative of the, the users that we're trying to reach, right? Like the people in the end of the ground, I think I resonate in that space and it brings a certain level of um, insight and, and just a different viewpoint to the conversation that I think is valuable. And in the board setting, Jackie was very intentional with me that Florence got on the board, that I needed to be the person who took the seat, which I fully embrace because I like to be the person who takes all the seats. Um, But definitely was like, you need to be here because we're really trying to change the structure of this program so that it's representative of the society, which is an even split between men and women. Um, So I think there's more work to do for sure. And I think it's up to our generations to continue to foster and mentor and advocate for that change.
1: Absolutely. So I want to jump on that thing you just said, Catherine, about more work to do. So I'd love to hear from both of you, you know, what do you think we need to be continuing to do? What needs to change? What sort of, you know, intentional actions? Because I do agree with you both. I think it really comes back to that intentionality. And what, you know, intentional actions do we need to be taking going forward to see this improve even more?
3: I think from my perspective, um, we need to be more open about some of the bias. A lot of the times people like to brush past it and say, you know, men and women are treated the same and that some of that divide is closed. But it comes down to practical things about childcare, right? right? Um, maternity leave, being away from work. As I've become an executive, I had a child later in life. It was very touchy for me to talk about, like, I need to take off because I got to go to the school event or, hey, my kid's sick. I need to work from home um because I was afraid of the perception that comes with that of like oh she prioritizes being a mother over being uh, a business person and that's not true right like i there you can't have it all nothing's equal my daughter will always come first but I had to cage that right and I was very cagey about when I was doing family activities and I didn't see the same counter in my male counterparts so I think just talk about it, right? Like, let's talk about the reality of what happens and some of the biases, whether they are unconscious or conscious that exist and then let's work on addressing them.
2: I agree with everything that Catherine said. And and as you can imagine, I, I even held it in more, right? Because my kids are a little bit older and and I was raising up in the ranks and I am confident that in the time from when I had my first daughter to when I had my second daughter, that I'm going to say, there's four years between them and this six year-ish period there, people were intentionally not promoting me because as soon as, you know, I was pretty public, you're pretty public when you know you're not going to have any more and you come back from that last maternity leave and stuff. And I was very confident. I wouldn't, I was pushing 40. And all of a sudden this like whole new world started opening up to me. Right. But I, I would definitely, definitely say, It has to be discussed, and I'm hoping some of the things that we learned coming out of COVID allows for a different level of flexibility so men and women, everyone, can participate in the family the way they want to, the way they need to. And it's not just about children. I mean, I'm now starting to deal with parents and other family obligations that also take you away from that standard workday. I'm hoping we're learning and people are adapting policies to, to allow people to continue to grow through their careers and not ever make somebody feel like they can't talk about it, they can't deal with what they need to deal with at the correct times, and that we're, we're compensating and allowing people to, to be their authentic self and deal with everything that's given to them. And that takes policy change at, at the corporate level, ensuring that we're building corporate programs that allow people to do that. But I also think we have governmental policy changes that need to happen to allow the companies to take care of their employees differently, right? The whole view on family leave really needs to be looked at to allow people to do what they need to do.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other component that goes with that is a little bit about interpersonal dynamics too, right? Like talking about... I've gotten more conscious about bringing it to attention when I feel that I'm being talked over or asked to see the floor and when I'm not done talking. Right. Like, so there's a little of those dynamics that are out there. Um, and I, and going to my boss and having scary conversations, being like, Hey, when this happens, this is how I feel. And I know that's not your intention, but I need to make you aware of it. Cause if it happens with me, it's probably going to happen somewhere else. So I think that's the other piece that we need to do is continue to have those like awkward conversations because they'll promote more um, open dialogues that will hopefully diminish the need to have those awkward conversations later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all in pursuit of a workplace that supports everyone, no matter what they're coming to the workplace with, whether it's a kid that you have to take care of, an elderly parent, obviously a lot of the caretaking duties traditionally fall on women, but I think we're also having increased conversations around, you know, paternity leave and what that looks like for men trying to also, you know, take care of their kids outside of the workplace and take them to a doctor's appointment or, you know, be with the kid for the first, you know, weeks, months, who knows what your company policy may be. But I think like you're saying, it's important to have those awkward conversations and calling it out. We talk about this, I think, um, in bigger diversity conversations as well, you can't pretend that these differences in how people are treated or what they have to go through. You can't, that doesn't exist. That would only serve to not solve the problem. So very on board with what you guys are saying. I wanted to also ask, do you find that being a woman gives you a different perspective in the work that you do? Do you think you approach your work differently? I'm curious to see sort of how you guys um, see that impacting your work.
3: I can jump off on this one. Um, I always get, I laugh because it's about like this perception of like women being more prone to empathy or having more soft skills than men, which I do think is true in some people. Um, And then there's other people. Uh, I often joke that I don't have a whole lot of EQ, right? And I tend to be very direct and very um, not confrontational, but I'm not, I will back down, right? And so I always have feelings of like, is that perceived differently because I'm a woman, right? Like if I was a man and doing this, like do they get a different perception than a woman, right? Like the difference between assertive and aggressive, the old joke, it's based on your gender. Um, so I think from my perspective, it, it makes it interesting um, in interpersonal dynamics for me. Cause I feel like maybe there's this perceived way that I should be acting because I'm a woman and I don't act that way.
1: Yeah, it's like the question of, do you put an exclamation mark in an email because the period seems too aggressive? Yeah, I don't think men think about that.
3: I've literally had to change my emails to put in extra exclamation points. So I act like I'm more excited or more, you know, warm um, versus like, please do this. I have to be like, hey, how's it going? If you have a moment, could you possibly do this for me?
2: I think, Sophia, you picked two people with too much of a similar style, (laughs) I'm going to say, because... I remember being coached early in my career that I didn't say something positive before I made my direct comment and then I didn't close with something positive. Like I remember being taught how to write email with direction and, and feedback in it. I'm like, oh Lord. <laughs> um, and and so I, I do think that then turns into the conversation and an expectation that as a female, you're going to back down. You're going to get... Flustered, or when somebody directs something at you, you won't be able to take it. Um, and and I think some of it's improved, but I wouldn't say it's great by any means. I still think there is a whole set of expectations that a woman will conduct themselves in those stereotypical ways. I think the longer we're in C-suite jobs. Um, we, we know how to get, um, you know, business conducted the way it needs to be conducted. I do think one thing that, um, I feel like I bring to a table is better listening. I, I do think we, we women tend to allow other people to finish their sentences better in some cases. And I do think we listen before we, we jump in, which I think is good manners not necessarily a male or a female trait. And um, it does set me off when people don't let you finish a a sentence or when I see somebody do it to somebody else, right? So, um, you know, I I do think that this is an area that needs some more work, some more training um, uh, to help people just behave better at senior level tables.
3: Yeah, for sure. I had, I remember one conversation in particular with the chief medical officer of an institution I worked at where we were debating a policy change and he told me I needed to be less emotional about it. And he's like, don't get so emotional. Like I'm not emotional. I just don't agree with you. Right. Like let's, let's change the, the dialogue here. Um, so a hundred percent, I think it's more to do, especially in those higher levels where you start to get more direct and then is there a different perception of it because of your gender?
1: Yeah, we need like an Emily Post, like Book of Manners, but for the boardroom, you know, less so about when we do votes and more so about just letting people finish a thought.
2: Yeah, I was going to say the voting process is very clear, right? So it's not, it's the conversations and the negotiation tactics and how you get to those resolutions for a a vote, right?
1: So I wanted to pivot our conversation a little bit. Obviously, you know, the work that you both do and we try to do at ACROS all in uh, pursuit of helping patients. So I kind of wanted to pivot our conversation a little bit to the patient angle. Um, And I was curious about how the two of you see, you know, some of these disparities we've talked about in the workforce translate into the representation of female participants in clinical trials. Um, Would love to kind of pick your brain, brains, I guess, brains, plural. Uh, on that topic <laughs> and kind of address the patient angle as well.
2: I'll go ahead and, and start here. Um, you know, diversity and inclusion in clinical trials starts with, you know, we started with white men and that's the only people that were in clinical trials. And we've made progress for women and we need to continue to make progress to all patients, women, um, minorities, all, all uh, disabilities, LGBTQIA, we know that we need to be all inclusive. But I think one place that we really need to also make sure we're including is the parent, the clinical trial support mechanism for somebody to be a participant, right? And so making sure that we're including, because many times it's a mother and or the caregiver for an elderly parent, again, is the daughter, And we know that that person has to have a really equal seat with the patient at the table and their life and bringing the clinical trial and the patient and that caregiver together is really important. And I don't believe we're doing enough for them to allow everyone to remain in their life so the patient can stay in the trial and receive the medical benefit we hope they get.
3: Yeah, um, I agree with all of that. And I think it's interesting that you know, the data shows that women are the healthcare decision makers more often than men in the family unit, but yet they're, they're underrepresented in clinical research. And I think there's some opportunity there in terms of representation, both in the staff and the physician level. I think also making it safe to ask questions, right? Like um, I've, I've witnessed, and it's a little bit to do with the white coat effect. Like patients are less likely to ask questions of a physician They're even less likely to ask them of a male physician. Um, so can we create some dialogues and make them look a little bit different for those patients so they feel safe asking those questions that make them feel included in, in the discussion and, and are more likely to join the trial? And then everything Jackie said about making it easy for patients to participate in trials. Um, people have to take time off work. People have to do things with their children. And I don't think that it's, you know, it impacts both men and women. I do feel that, you know, women get it a little bit more than men just because of, of some Existing bias in, in family structure, but that's everybody, right? We've got to make it easier for people to get to a clinic to participate in a trial by bringing them closer to their home and making it easier um, for them to do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I think, you know, we've talked a lot within ACRO, but obviously outside of ACRO, the industry has been hot on this for a while about the idea of how we decentralize clinical trials, bring them closer to the patient, um, and make trials just generally more patient centric. Obviously, I think when we talk about DCTs and technology, that you have to acknowledge that, you know, access and understanding of technology is not the same across the board for everyone. We could get into a whole conversation about the need for national broadband, but I think that's a different episode. <laughs> um, But yeah, I would just, I want to hear what both of you think about, you know, really utilizing some of those decentralized elements, what we can um leverage to make it easier for women, but you know, just anyone really to participate in a trial um, and kind of what specific areas you see as maybe really promising, what you'd like us to maybe dive deeper in, drill down on more, what needs to be refined. What do you see with the opportunity of DCTs and some of these um, new technologies we're trying to leverage?
2: So I would put, so as you know, I'm a a very big advocate for decentralized clinical trials. um, As long as we're thoughtful about how we implement them, and we're ensuring that the services to support the technology elements work for the patients, and the patients have the support that they need and the site. I I still think we have some significant patient barriers to break down alongside the technology, and I want to make sure um, that as we, we move forward with implementation of technology, and the use of data and AI, that we're not forgetting things like cost and patient stipends and reimbursements. And, and Sophia, we've worked on this so many times. And, and the patient burdens that get left out when we talk about technology. And i we need to, we, we also can't forget the patient engagement and, and trust issues. And so as long as we marry up the education and patient engagement along with the other side of patient burden, right, which I'm talking about the financial side of that, and then we, we have the technology and we keep all those things on the top of our minds, um, I, I think we will really help patients, whether they're male, female, pediatrics, be able to enter into clinical trials to get the medical care they need.
3: Yeah. um, Same, right? Like I work, I work in the space right now with Florence, but it, to me, it's a little challenging. And I like to not use the word decentralized lately um, because it's got a stigma attached to it. But, and I used to tell my cancer centers when they would talk about decentralized trials, like, oh, that's not us. It's like, it's literally doing everything we did during COVID to stay alive, right? Like it's home health, it's telehealth, it's shipping drugs. um, It's using patient diaries, things that we've done for years. That's all part of that. But it's this tech enabled trials, I think helps democratize study experience in some ways by making it more accessible and easier to deploy into communities with less infrastructure right it takes less people when there's some tech to do some of the work. Um, But it does create additional barriers for those people, Um, not everybody has a cell phone right Not everybody has Wi Fi Um, so. And also not everybody engages with technology the same way. Um, I always tell the story, right? Like I will do whatever you want me to do on my phone as long as I don't have to talk to a human, right? Like that is my MO. That's what I like. My grandmother, you give her a cell phone and she's convinced that the government is watching you and taking all of your information, possibly your soul, and isn't going to put anything into it, right? So how do you get us both the experience we need to participate in a trial? And that's going to come down to optionality. And optionality is scary to a lot of people because optionality means variability. And variability in data is, is like the big like void of, oh, no, we can't do that. But if we really want to make it easier for people to participate and help with addressing some of those gaps, we've got to have options for them that meet them where they are. So that means some people will do it on the phone. Some people do it on paper and we have to allow both of those experiences to exist within the same space. And then financial um, burden and then cancer, we called it financial toxicity because we like to be cute. It's real, right? Like there are costs associated with trials, both in terms of time, um, travel, loss of work, also co-pays and the amount of time you spend in the clinic. Um, There's a cost to having disease beyond just the treatment. So we, we really need to be cognizant of that when we build out our protocols and our budgets.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think a lot of what we're talking about in this space, similar to what you said earlier, Jackie, is obviously we need to have some changes and some new ways of thinking within companies. But so much of what we're talking about, particularly with this last little question, requires policy changes and support from policymakers, regulators. I think it's going to be a real collaboration between industry and government. To make a lot of this possible. Um, And, you know, that is sort of why ACRO exists. We like to work with our government partners to make the industry better for patients and, you know, the business environment as well. But I think it's a, it's a big lift, but that's why associations exist. I do have a final question for both of you back to our sort of, you know, long view of your careers and what you've done up to this point. I'm curious if you have any advice for young Jackie and young Catherine getting started in the industry?
3: I'll go first since Jackie took the last couple. Um, if I can think back, I mean, the one piece of advice that I, I did follow and that I, I encourage other young, young career minded individuals to follow is never close a road, right? Like always follow that side road because you don't know where it's going to take you. Um, like I said, when I started this journey, I was getting my master's in history. I was going to go work in a museum. That was my life. Um, I took, a, I took a side road for a minute and turned into a career that I love um, and that I can't imagine my life without, right? And then I went from direct patient care to administration, and now I'm in software, which is really weird. Um, so you, you got to be open to experiences because there's ways that you can impact change and drive um, better, better outcomes for patients that don't involve you being in a clinic um, with a stethoscope, right? Like you have other options. So be open to those the, and pursue them.
2: Well, I think Catherine stole most of my my answer here because you know I stumbled into this um, through somebody asking me to try something, and and I'm not saying everyone says yes to everything, but keep your mind open because the most um, fascinating, the most um, you know engaging, self fulfilling types of careers and opportunities come from something you might not have been thinking about. Um, And so really keeping yourself open to something someone else saw in you and why they think you'd be good at it, um, I, I think is where you get the best opportunities, not just to experience something that maybe wasn't on your plan, but also for very lucrative promotions and opportunities. So, you know, keep your doors open, never burn bridges, you know, and enjoy your job.
3: Yeah, for sure. And I'll throw in one more thing that my life coach just said to me, she's not my life coach, she's my executive coach, but um, is if I could tell the younger me that when you get feedback, practice the 1% rule, like what if 1% of what they're telling you is accurate? Like, because especially when you're younger, there's a little bit of that, like, no, that's not what I'm doing. You don't need to tell me I can do this. Take some of that and, and reflect on it and apply it and continue to take that feedback and learn um, no matter where that feedback comes from. And I think you'll start to see some opportunities to change um, for the better that you may not if you were completely closed off.
1: I love that. That is really great advice uh, from both of you that I know I, for one, will be uh, taking on board as I move forward in my career. Um, that's really the bulk of our episode for today. Um, it's been fantastic speaking with both of you. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I can't wait to keep this and other conversations going um, with you two and with the rest of the ACRO board, the ACRO membership, uh, and the industry as we keep moving forward to really better the work um, that we do in the clinical trials industry for everyone. So thanks again to the both of you for joining me. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Sophia. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our series premiere with Jackie and Catherine. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. Check out Acro on LinkedIn. And if you visit our website, acrohealth.org, you can see all of the initiatives that we here at the association are working on. Uh, Be sure to tune in next week while we'll be talking about all things clinical trials in the UK.